The French Revolution, A History, by Thomas Carlyle. Volume 3, The Guillotine. Book 2, Regicide. Chapter 1, The Deliberative. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Book 2, Chapter 1, The Deliberative. France, therefore, has done two things very completely. She has hurled back her Sumerian invaders far over the marches, and likewise she has shattered her own internal social constitution, even to the minutest fibre of it, into wreck and dissolution. Utterly it is all altered, from king down to parish constable, all authorities, magistrates, judges, persons that bore rule, have had on the sudden to alter themselves so far as needful, or else on the sudden and not without violence to be altered. A patriot executive council of ministers with a patriot Danton in it, and then a whole nation and national convention have taken care of that. Not a parish constable in the furthest hamlet who has said de par le roi and shown loyalty, but must retire, making way for a new, improved parish constable who can say de par la république. It is a change such as history must beg her readers to imagine, undescribed. An instantaneous change of the whole body politic, the soul politic, being all changed. Such a change as few bodies, politic or other, can experience in this world. Say, perhaps, such as poor nymph Samele's body did experience when she would needs, with a woman's humour, see her Olympian Jove as very Jove, and so stood poor nymph this moment Samele, next moment not Samele, but flame and a statue of red-hot ashes. Francis looked upon democracy, seen it face to face. The Sumerian invaders will rally in humbler temper, with better or worse luck. The wreck and dissolution must reshape itself into a social arrangement as it can and may. But as for this national convention, which is to settle everything, if it do, as Deputy Payne and France generally expect, get all finished in a few months, we shall call it a most deft convention. In truth, it is very singular to see how this mercurial French people plunges suddenly from vive le roi to vive la république, and goes simmering and dancing, shaking off daily, so to speak, and trampling into the dust its old social garnitures, ways of thinking, rules of existing, and cheerfully dances towards the ruleless, unknown, with such hope in its heart, and nothing but freedom, equality, and brotherhood in its mouth. Is it two centuries, or is it only two years, since all France roared simultaneously to the welkin, bursting forth into sound and smoke at its feast of pikes, Live the restorer of French liberty! Three short years ago there was still Versailles and an oeil de boeuf. Now there is that watched circuit of the temple, girt with dragon-eyed municipals, where, as in its final limbo, royalty lies extinct. In the year 1789, constituent deputy Barret wept in his break-of-day newspaper at sight of a reconciled King Louis. And now, in 1792, convention deputy Barret, perfectly tearless, may be considering whether the reconciled King Louis shall be guillotined or not. Old garnitures and social vestures drop off, we say, so fast, being indeed quite decayed, 
and are trodden under the national dance. And the new vestures, where are they? The new modes and rules. Liberty, equality, fraternity, not vestures, but the wish for vestures. The nation is, for the present, figuratively speaking, naked. It has no rule or vesture, but is naked, a sanscalotic nation. So far, therefore, in such manner have our patriot Brissot's guardes triumphed. Vernio's Ezekiel visions of the fall of thrones and crowns, which he spake hypothetically and prophetically in the spring of the year, have suddenly come to fulfilment in the autumn. Our eloquent patriots of the legislative, like strong conjurers by the word of their mouth, have swept royalism with its old modes and formulas to the winds, and shall now govern a France free of formulas. Free of formulas, and yet man lives not except with formulas, with customs, ways of doing and living. No text truer than this, which will hold true from the tea-table and tailor's shop-board up to the high senate-house, solemn temples, nay, through all provinces of mind and imagination, onwards to the utmost confines of articulate being. Upi homines sunt, modi sunt. There are modes wherever there are men. It is the deepest law of man's nature whereby man is a craftsman and tool-using animal, not the slave of impulse, chance and brute nature, but in some measure their lord. Twenty-five millions of men, suddenly stripped bare of their modi, and dancing them down in that manner, are a terrible thing to govern. Eloquent patriots of the legislative, meanwhile, have precisely this problem to solve. Under the name and nickname of statesman, hommes d'état, of moderate men, moderantins, of brissantins, rolandins, finally of girondins, they shall become world famous in solving it. For the twenty-five millions are Gallic effervescent too, filled both with hope of the unutterable, of universal fraternity and golden age, and with terror of the unutterable Sumerian Europe all rallying on us. It is a problem like few. Truly, if man, as the philosophers brag, did to any extent look before and after, what, one may ask, in many cases would become of him? What, in this case, would become of these 749 men? The convention, seen clearly before and after, were a paralysed convention. Seen clearly to the length of its own nose, it is not paralysed. To the convention itself, neither the work nor the method of doing it is doubtful. To make the constitution, to defend the republic till that be made. Speedily enough, accordingly, there has been a committee of the constitution got together. C.A., old constituent, constitution builder by trade. Condor, say, fit for better things. Deputy Payne, foreign benefactor of the species, with that red carbuncled face and the black beaming eyes. Harold de Seychelles, ex-parlementeer, one of the handsomest men in France. These, with inferior guild brethren, are girt cheerfully to the work, will once more make the constitution, let us hope, more effectually than last time. For that the constitution can be made, who doubts? Unless the gospel of Jean-Jacques came into the world in vain... True, our last constitution did tumble within the year, so lamentably. 
But what then except sort the rubbish and boulders and build them up again better? Widen your basis, for one thing, to universal suffrage if need be. Exclude rotten materials, royalism and such like, for another thing. And in brief build, O oh, unspeakable Sier and company, unwearied. Frequent perilous downrushing of scaffolding and rubble work, be that an irritation, no discouragement. Start ye always again, clearing aside the wreck, if with broken limbs, yet with whole hearts, and build, we say, in the name of heaven, till either the work do stand, or else mankind abandon it, and the constitution builders be paid off with laughter and tears. One good time, in the course of eternity, it was appointed that this of social contract too should try itself out. And so the Committee of Constitution shall toil, with hope and faith, with no disturbance from any reader of these pages. To make the Constitution then, and return home joyfully in a few months, this is the prophecy our National Convention gives of itself. By this scientific programme shall its operations and events go on. But from the best scientific programme in such a case to the actual fulfilment, what a difference! Every reunion of men, is it not, as we often say, a reunion of incalculable influences, every unit of it a microcosm of influences, of which how shall science calculate or prophecy? Science which cannot, with all its calculuses, differential, integral, and of variations, calculate the problem of three gravitating bodies, ought to hold her peace here, and say only, in this national convention there are 749 very singular bodies that gravitate and do much else, who probably, in an amazing manner, will work the appointment of heaven. Of national assemblages, parliaments, congresses, which have long sat, which are of saturnine temperament, above all which are not dreadfully in earnest, something may be computed or conjectured, yet even these are a kind of mystery in progress, whereby we see the journalist reporter find livelihood, even these jolt madly out of the ruts from time to time. How much more a poor national convention of French vehemence urged on at such velocity, without routine, without rut, track or landmark, and dreadfully in earnest every man of them. It is a parliament, literally, such as there was never elsewhere in the world. Themselves are new, unarranged. They are the heart and presiding centre of a France fallen wholly into maddest disarrangement. From all cities, hamlets, from the utmost ends of this France, with its twenty-five million vehement souls, thick streaming influences storm in on that same heart in the Salle de Manege, and storm out again, such fiery venous arterial circulation is the function of that heart. Seven hundred and forty-nine human individuals, we say, never sat together on earth under more original circumstances. Common individuals, most of them, or not far from common, yet in virtue of the position they occupied, so notable. How in this wild piping of the whirlwind of human passions, with death, victory, terror, valour, and all height and all depth, peeling and piping, these men, left to their own guidance, will speak and act. Readers know well that this French National Convention, quite contrary to its own programme, became the astonishment and horror of mankind, 
a kind of apocalyptic convention or black dream become real, concerning which history seldom speaks except in the way of interjection, how it covered France with woe, delusion and delirium, and from its bosom there went forth death on the pale horse. To hate this poor national convention is easy. To praise and love it has not been found impossible. It is, as we say, a parliament in the most original circumstances. To us, in these pages, be it a fuliginous, fiery mystery where upper has met nether, and in such alternate glare and blackness of darkness poor bedazzled mortals know not which is upper, which is nether, but rage and plunge distractedly, as mortals in that case will do. A convention which has to consume itself suicidally and become dead ashes with its world, behoves us not to enter exploratively its dim, embroiled deeps, yet to stand with unwavering eyes, looking how it welters, what notable phases and occurrences it will successively throw up. One general, superficial circumstance we remark with praise, the force of politeness. To such depth has the sense of civilization penetrated man's life, no Drouet, no Legendre, in the maddest tug of war, can altogether shake it off. Debates of senates, dreadfully in earnest, are seldom given frankly to the world, else perhaps they would surprise it. Did not the grand monarch himself once chase his louvois with a pair of brandished tongs? But reading long volumes of these convention debates, all in a foam with furious earnestness, earnest many times to the extent of life and death, one is struck rather with the degree of continence they manifest in speech, and how in such wild ebullition there is still a kind of polite rule struggling for mastery, and the forms of social life never altogether disappear. These men, though they menace with clenched right hands, do not clench one another by the collar. They draw no daggers except for oratorical purposes, and this not often. Profane swearing is almost unknown, though the reports are frank enough. We find only one or two oaths, oaths by Marat, reported in all. For the rest, that there is effervescence, who doubts? Effervescence enough. Decrees passed by acclamation today, repeated by vociferation tomorrow. Temper fitful, most rotatory, changeful, always headlong. The voice of the orator is covered with rumours. A hundred honourable members rush with menaces towards the left side of the hall. President has broken three bells in succession. Claps on his hat as signal that the country is near ruined. A fiercely effervescent old Gallic assemblage. Ah, how the loud six sounds of debate and of life, which is a debate, sink silent one after another, so loud now and in a little while so low. Brennus and those antique gale captains in their way to Rome, to Galatia and such places, whither they were in the habit of marching in the most fiery manner, had debates as effervescent, doubt it not, though no moniteur has reported them. They scolded in Celtic Welsh, those Brennuses, neither were they sans calotte, nay, rather breeches, barkai, say of felt or rough leather, were the only thing they had, being, as Livy testifies, naked down to the haunches. 
and see it is the same sort of work and of men still now when they have got coats and speak nasally a kind of broken latin but on the whole does not time envelop this present national convention as it did those brennuses and ancient august senates in felt breeches time surely and also eternity dim dusk of time or noon which will be dusk and then there is night and silence and time with all its sick noises is swallowed in the still sea pity thy brother o son of adam the angriest frothy jargon that he utters is it not properly the whimpering of an infant which cannot speak what ails it but is in distress clearly in the inwards of it and so must squall and whimper continually till its mother take it and get it to sleep this convention is not four days old and the melodious Melibuean stanzas that shook down royalty are still fresh in our ear when there bursts out a new diapason unhappily of discord this time for speech has been made of a thing difficult to speak of well the september massacres how deal with these september massacres with the paris commune that presided over them a paris commune hateful terrible before which the poor effete legislative had to quail and sit quiet and now, if a young, omnipotent convention will not so quail and sit, what steps shall it take? Have a departmental guard in its pay, answered the Girondins and friends of order. A guard of national volunteers, missioned from all the 83 or 85 departments for that express end. These will keep Septemberers, tumultuous communes, in a due state of submissiveness, the convention in a due state of sovereignty. So have the friends of order answered, sitting in committee and reporting, and even a decree has been passed of the required tenor. Nay, certain departments, as the VAR or Marseille, in mere expectation and assurance of a decree, have their contingent of volunteers already on march. Brave Marseillaise, foremost on the 10th of August, will not be hindmost here. Fathers gave their sons a musket and twenty-five louis, says Barbaroux, and bade them march. Can anything be properer? A republic that will found itself on justice must needs investigate September massacres. A convention calling itself national ought it not to be guarded by a national force? Alas, reader, it seems so to the eye, and yet there is much to be said and argued. Thou beholdest here the small beginning of a controversy which mere logic will not settle. Two small wellsprings, September departmental guard or rather at bottom they are but one and the same small wellspring which will swell and widen into waters of bitterness all manner of subsidiary streams and brooks of bitterness flowing in from this side and that till it become a wide river of bitterness of rage and separation which can subside only into the catacombs this departmental guard, decreed by overwhelming majorities, and then repealed for peace sake, and not to insult Paris, is again decreed more than once. Nay, it is partially executed, and the very men that are to be of it are seen visibly parading the Paris streets, shouting once, being overtaken with liquor, Abba Marat, down with Marat. Nevertheless, decreed never so often, it is repealed just as often, and continues for some seven months an angry, noisy hypothesis only, 
a fair possibility struggling to become a reality, but which shall never be one, which, after endless struggling, shall in February next sink into sad rest, dragging much along with it. So singular are the ways of men and honourable members. But on this fourth day of the Convention's existence, as we said, which is the 25th of September, 1792, there comes committee report on that decree of the departmental guard and speech of repealing it. There come denunciations of anarchy, of a dictatorship which let the incorruptible Robespierre consider. There come denunciations of a certain Journal de la République, once called Ami du Peuple, and so thereupon there comes, visibly stepping up, visibly standing aloft on the tribune, ready to speak, the bodily spectrum of people's friend Marat. Shriki 749, it is verily Marat, he and not another. Marat is no phantasm of the brain or mere lying impress of printer's types, but a thing material, of joint and sinew, and a certain small stature. He behold him there in his blackness, in his dingy squalor, a living fraction of chaos and old night, visibly incarnate, desirous to speak. It appears, says Maras to the shrieking assembly, that a great many persons here are enemies of mine. All, all, shriek hundreds of voices, enough to drown any people's friend. But Marat will not drown. He speaks and croaks explanation, croaks with such reasonableness, air of sincerity, that repentant pity smothers anger, and the shrieks subside or even become applauses. For this convention is unfortunately the crankest of machines. It shall be pointing eastward with stiff violence this moment, and then do but touch some spring dexterously, the whole machine, clattering and jerking seven hundredfold, will whirl with great crash, and next moment is pointing westward. Thus Marat, absolved and applauded, victorious in this turn of fence, is, as the debate goes on, pricked at again by some dexterous Girondin, and then the shrieks rise anew, and decree of accusation is on the point of passing, till the dingy people's friend bobs aloft once more, croaks once more persuasive stillness, and the degree of accusation sinks, whereupon he draws forth a pistol, and setting it to his head, the seat of such thought and prophecy says, if they had passed their accusation decree, he, the people's friend, would have blown his brains out. A people's friend has that faculty in him. For the rest, as to this of the 260,000 aristocrat heads, Marat candidly says, c'est là mon avis, such is my opinion. Also, it is not indisputable. No power on earth can prevent me from seeing into traitors and unmasking them. By my superior originality of mind, an honourable member like this friend of the people, few terrestrial parliaments have had. We observe, however, that this first onslaught by the friends of order, as sharp and prompt as it was, has failed. For neither can Robespierre, summoned out by talk of dictatorship and greet with the like rumour on showing himself be thrown into prison, into accusation, not though Barbaro openly bear testimony against him and sign it on paper. 
With such sanctified meekness does the incorruptible lift his sea-green cheek to the smiter, lift his thin voice, and with Jesuitic dexterity plead and prosper, asking at last in a prosperous manner, But what witnesses has the citoyen Barbaroux to support his testimony? Moi! cries red-hot Rebecca, standing up, striking his breast with both hands, and answering, Me! Nevertheless, the sea-green pleads again and makes it good, the long hurly-burly, personal merely, while so much public matter lies fallow, has ended in the order of the day. O oh, friends of the Gironde, why will you occupy our august sessions with mere paltry personalities while the grand nationality lies in such a state? The Gironde has touched this day on the foul black spot of its fair convention domain, has trodden on it, and yet not trodden it down. Alas, it is a wellspring, as we said, this black spot, and will not tread down. End of Book 2, Chapter 1